Avi Ben Mordechai here. Shalom. You're tuned into Real Israel Talk Radio. Today's show is a special edition for 2023. The program today is Why I Exchanged My Christmas Tree for a Menorah, a teaching hosted by my wife, Suzanne. She will share with you some of her thoughts about Christmas and the Christmas season. Now, all of what Suzanne will speak about today is easily verified from documented history, and so it is really nothing new. However, I asked Suzanne to present her perspective of the Christmas season because, like for many of you, it was something that she grew up with, and it has a lot of family memories linked to the event. Here is Suzanne with her perspective about Christmas. What was on my heart to share today is why I exchanged my Christmas tree for a menorah. I know for many of you, it's a very special, it's a crazy time, but also a very special time. And for myself, I grew up with Christmas. I have wonderful, wonderful family memories. And my late husband and I raised our kids as well with Christmas. And then when my spiritual journey took a turn, things changed. I grew up in the church. It was very traditional for us South Africans. We all went to church every Sunday. Church was just part of our culture, I would say. And then at a stage in my life, my kids were little. I was happily married and life was just so good. And I felt so thankful that that I remember one day I was sitting in my room and I said, God, I feel so blessed. I know I didn't deserve this, so I want to thank you, but I realize I don't know you. I don't really know you. I want to know you so that I can thank you. And I then asked, show me how to thank you, how to love you back for all this undeserved goodness. And that I didn't realize at that moment. But that was a pivotal point in my spiritual journey because after that, I got introduced to God's commandments. And from the church tradition that I come from, we've been taught that the law of Moses, as we know it, has been done away with. And I don't know if it was just me never giving full attention in church, but the perception I in a way had at that time was the law was nailed to the cross. So all those dietary requirements and all those things that we know the Jews do, that didn't apply to us anymore. So there is now a new law of Christ. And the new law of Christ is that we should love one another. And it's as simple as that. And the Holy Spirit will indwell you and will guide you into what that means to love one another. That's how I had it. And then God confronted me after me asking, how do I thank you and love you back? He really confronted and challenged me with that view. And it took me literally nine months from the moment that I knew he was urging me and challenging me with, with my view. It took me nine months of struggling with that and saying, but God, what about this scripture? And what about this one? We're not under law, but under grace. I had so many proofs for my, my belief that I kept rebuking the devil and saying, get away from you. You're trying to get me away from grace and get me back under law. So it was quite a struggle. But the more I rebuked the devil, 
He didn't go away and God was just silently keeping at me. I remember one day I was saying, well, if this is the right road, where are all the other people on this road? This was back in probably about 2006. And I just clearly heard him asking me, are you following the sheep or are you following the shepherd? And, oh, man, I knew it was time to follow the shepherd and trust him with everything, even if there were not sheep around me making me feel safe. So at that stage, I just said, if it's you, just clearly show me it's you, God. And even if I don't understand, I will obey you. And then he gave me a dream. I woke up the next morning and I clearly knew it was God talking to me about his commandments. And that um, Saturday, our family, we observed Shabbat for the first time, not knowing what we're doing, how we're doing it, but we just had that sense that God was leading us to honoring and observing his seventh day. And then from that, it led into his biblical calendar and his feasts. And even though we didn't understand, we just knew it was right by that stage and our understanding came later. So for you who are still observing Christmas or Easter and Sunday, please don't feel condemned. I know exactly where you're at. I'm not trying to convert you to Judaism. I'm not trying to get you away from the grace of God. I want to share with you the beauty of His commandments. If you go and read Psalm 119 and you see how David loved God's Torah, And then you think, but how could that be? If we're saying that God's law puts us under bondage, how can David have loved that so much? So it's a miracle that God changed my heart and my mind totally about the beauty of his instructions for life. It's not for us to get saved by, but once we are saved, it's how we shall live, honoring him, turning our backs on sin and walking his way. Yeah, so... I want to start off with that foundation and saying you don't have to be Jewish. The things I'm talking about today, sharing with you, it's for you too, no matter what nation you come from, what your natural bloodline is. If you're a believer in Yeshua or Jesus of Nazareth, this is for you. And it's it's to bless you. It's not to harm you. It's not to leave you into bondage. It's to, to lead you into a deeper understanding of who he is, because Yeshua Messiah is the goal of the Torah. He's the goal of everything in the Bible. All these feasts, the instructions, it points to him. It points to what he has done for us, what he still will do for us, and then how we shall live as a set-apart nation once we are grafted into his kingdom of light. So let's get going. Yeah, I suppose the first thing I want to share with you is something that happened between myself and my mom-in-law. We were still observing Christmas and it was time for me to buy my mother-in-law a present. And I didn't know her that well at that stage. We hadn't been married for very long. So I ended up buying her a salad bowl. Not knowing exactly what her taste is, I chose a salad bowl that I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind having a salad bowl like that. So I chose one like that for her. And um, she obviously opened it, smiled, gracefully thanked me. But then years later, visiting my sister-in-law 
I opened her cupboard and I said, oh, this is a salad bowl that looks familiar. So I found the salad bowl in my sister-in-law's cupboard. So my mom-in-law had given it away. And when I asked God about Christians that still keep Christmas and don't know anything more than that, he reminded me of that incident. And he said, your mom-in-law received your heart, but she gave away. She, she didn't hold on to your gift because she doesn't like it, but she did hold on to the heart that you gave it with. I've heard a lot of people say, if we talk about Christmas and maybe the pagan roots of Christmas, they say, but that's not how I mean it. It's not in my heart. So God knows that. He receives your heart. But if your gift is not according to his word and according to his plan, he's going to throw your gift away. But he receives your heart. The problem is once we know truth and we have the knowledge of truth, if I then still insist year after year to buy my mom-in-law a salad bowl that's according to my liking and not to her liking, then there's something different going in my heart. Then it's not about her and loving her. It's about me. So then my heart's not in the right place. So we can't judge. I don't believe we can judge people because we don't know the hearts. Only God knows the heart. And he judges us according to the light and the knowledge that we have. But once he starts drawing you into a deeper truth and intimacy with him and into deeper knowledge of how to love him back, remember that's where my journey started. How do I love you back? If you want to love him back, the way he wants to be loved, not the way we think, the way he wants to be loved. If he's drawing you into that, then listen to what I have to share and go and pray about it. And if God is convicting you, then this is something that you might consider changing in your life. Some of you ladies might be thinking, Suzanne, but that's not how I mean it when I observe Christmas. That's not what's in my heart. And God knows that. And I want to say to you, yes, I totally relate. I remember thinking those same words. But then after I read Exodus 32, it challenged my view on that as well. In Exodus 32, Moses is still on the mountain meeting with God and the Israelites thought that he was missing, maybe dead and not coming back. What they then did is they took their jewelry, all the gold they have, and they gave it to Aaron and he molded a golden calf. Then in verse 5, it's written, And Aaron built an altar before it, meaning the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and he said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Here, Lord is yod heh vav That's clearly the God of Israel here. It's not any other God. So these Israelites were worshipping in front of a golden calf and saying it's a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. But, verse 7 we read, The Lord said to Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou brought out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. So clearly God doesn't see this as okay, Um if it's not according to the way he wanted to be worshipped. He told them, don't worship me the way the other nations worship me. The moment our family had the knowledge of this verse and many others, it was quite an easy change for us to make. 
Our kids were then maybe 11 and 13, our two boys. No one else that they knew were doing these things that we were doing. Our whole community, everyone was observing Christmas and um, we explained to the kids what we were doing and why we were doing it and they totally understood. So don't be daunted by this. If God puts it on your heart, he will show you the way and it is such a beautiful journey. It took a while for my family to get used to it, but I know they respect my choice and I respect theirs, and I feel that's enough for now. But maybe after sharing today why we've gone on that journey, maybe they understand a bit better too. Right, so just to give you a bit of an outline, I want to share with you a bit of history about Christmas. I want to share with you a bit about calendars, um, different calendars in the world, the calendar that the Catholic and Protestant Church is on. And then we're going to look at some of the most popular Christmas traditions, where they come from. And then we're going to look into a few Bible verses and see what does God say about this? Does he even have an opinion? And if so, what is it? And what does he expect of us? This is a serious enough thing that I want to give you some scriptural backup for why I've exchanged my Christmas tree for a menorah. And then in the end, we'll talk a bit about the menorah. What do I mean with menorah? Isn't a menorah just for the Jews? For those of you who don't know what a menorah is, a menorah is the lampstand that was in the temple, the seven lamp candelabra. So today it's typically associated with, with Israel and with Jews and not really with Christianity. But you'll see even in Revelation in the New Testament, the symbol of the seven churches is the lampstand. And that lampstand, if it had been written in Hebrew, it would have been menorah. So the menorah is the symbol of our congregations and of the church and of the light that we're meant to bear. So we'll talk a bit about the menorah as well in the end, just bringing it all together. So let's get started with the calendar. And we'll look at a few different kinds of calendars. Um, throughout all the cultures and ages, there has been many different kinds of calendars. And you probably would have heard about the Egyptian calendar, the Chinese calendar, and Chinese New Year is a different time of the year than you're used to. The Mayan calendar, was it 2012 when the world was meant to end according to the Mayan calendar? These calendars don't only keep track of time, but all of them have set dates for religious events, honoring the specific deities of all those cultures. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not just about keeping time. It's about festivals and worshiping the God that you serve. Amongst all these cultures, there's four basic types of calendars. The first one is a seasonal calendar. Before coming to Australia, I've never been in touch with anything like that. But here, the Australian first people follow a seasonal calendar and their calendar has between four and 13 seasons. And it's based on plant, water and animal cycles and how they respond to one another. So that was pretty interesting for me to learn about. Then um, another kind of calendar, the lunar calendar, that's based on the moon. And an example of that would be Islam. Islam follows the moon calendar. 
solar calendar is another one that most of you probably would be familiar with. Well, you should be. Our current Gregorian calendar comes from Rome and is a solar calendar. Also, the ancient Egyptians were on a solar calendar. And then the lunisolar is a combination of sun and moon. The Chinese have a lunisolar calendar, the Incas had, and the biblical Hebrew calendar is based on the sun and the moon. So that too is a lunisolar calendar. These calendars are based on sun, moon, sometimes stars, and their effect on nature. So too with the Hebrew people of the Bible. So let's see what God says about the purpose of these heavenly lights, the sun and the moon and the stars. In Genesis 1.14, we read, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. I don't know about you, but for many years in reading my Bible, I thought when it says, let them be for signs and seasons, I thought seasons meant like summer, fall, winter, spring, seasons of the year. But I've learned in the meantime that if you look at the Hebrew behind that word, the Hebrew word is moedim, and it doesn't mean seasons as in the seasons of the year. It means fixed appointments. It's from the root ya'ad, which means to meet at a fixed time by appointment, like an engagement that you've got an appointed meeting with your beloved. So there's clearly very deep messianic themes here. We know God's first appointed time, his first moed with us in this world, was when he came to the world as the Lamb of God, when the Word became flesh um, as Yeshua or Jesus of Nazareth. And the first time he came to buy a bride and to call us to an engagement. The second appointed time on earth will be when he comes back as the Lion. He's going to come back to judge the world. Included in the appointed times in the Bible are the events of God's sacred calendar in how he is dealing with humanity. Most of us were first introduced to these Moedim as Jewish feasts, but I want to show you from Scripture what God says about them. They are his appointed time or his Moedim. In Leviticus 23 verse 2, it says the following, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts, not the Jewish feasts, my feasts. And the word holy convocation, holy means set apart, and convocation is the word mikra. This means a called out meeting, an assembly a convocation or a rehearsal. Mikra is from the word kara, which means to call out, to publish, to proclaim. So they are called out meetings on his calendar, rehearsals, practices, repetitions to prepare us for an event, like rehearsals before a wedding. You rehearse to get it right on the big day. So too, these are biblical rehearsals that he has called us out to, to get it right on the big, big day which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So then in Leviticus 23, it spells out the different appointed times, Moedim, which are Shabbat, Passover, unleavened bread, the Feast of First Cutting, the Feast of Weeks, which you would probably know as Pentecost, 
then the day of the blowing or the day of trumpets and day of atonement, Yom Kippur or Yom HaKippurim. And then lastly, feasts of tabernacles, or you might know it as feast of booths or in Hebrew Sukkot. God wants these proclaimed as set apart convocations. It's his mikra. Through observing these called out rehearsals, we meet with him. It's his appointment with his engaged, his beloved, that he wants to marry. We also proclaim God's appointed times with others, with mankind. And in these appointed times, he reveals his plan or his blueprint for salvation that he's offered us. Colossians 2 verse 15 to 17 is written, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Messiah. The context here doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. The context is here is don't let someone judge you because you're following it the biblical way instead of the way of the pagans or the world. Don't let them judge you because you're operating in something that God has called you out to do so that it can point to Messiah as the substance of it all. Thus, having the blueprint makes it possible for us to also match any prospective Messiahs to this blueprint, to test his authenticity. How do we know if we're picking up someone at the airport that we haven't met before? Someone will give you a photograph and say, this is the person you have to pick up then you match them with the blueprint, with the photograph, to know if you're picking up the right person from the airport. So too with the Messiah. How do you know it's the right Messiah that you're serving compared to the blueprint? If they don't match, you have to say, well, I've got a wrong perception of the Messiah. I've created him in my image or in the world's image instead of the image that he truly is. Now let's take a quick look at the Christian calendar and see how that compares to this biblical calendar that we've just read about and see if there has been tampered with. The Western Christian liturgical calendars are based on the cycle of the Roman rite of the Catholic Church. This will include Lutheran, Anglican and other Protestant calendars since this Roman rite cycle predates the Reformation. Generally, the liturgical seasons in Western Christianity are firstly Sunday, so that's the first day of the week instead of God's seventh day, the Sabbath. Christmas, the 25th of December, which is the topic of today. Then the Epiphany, which is when Jesus was revealed to the Magi, sometimes called Little Christmas. Followed by Lent, which is preparation for Easter, starting with Ash Wednesday and ending with Easter, and then culminating in Easter. So Easter, we've got hot cross buns instead of Passover and unleavened bread. Easter is named after Ishtar. It's containing bunnies and eggs and all kinds of things that pertain to fertility cults and fertility rituals and nothing to do with the Bible. And then we have that the close of the liturgical calendar is Pentecost. Now, Pentecost matches with the biblical Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. But in reality, the meaning behind it for us is quite different in the Bible as opposed to in Christian culture of Pentecost. Whereas Feast of Weeks in the Bible, Shavuot, is the day that Moses brought God's 
marriage covenant of the mountain, bringing it to his people and saying, will you marry me? And I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the day of the contract between him and his bride, where he states contractually what it means to be their God and they commit to what it means to be his people. So that's very much associated with leaving sin and Egypt behind and now following his ways as you enter into marriage with him. So other than reinventing a whole new calendar, as you can clearly hear, many of these appointed times from the church today are so riddled with the traditions of the surrounding nations that some of them have come to resemble the idolatrous feasts of the world more than any attempt to observe a festival of the Bible. You're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. The program that you're listening to today is Why I Exchanged My Christmas Tree for a Menorah, hosted by my wife, Suzanne. After this quick break, we'll come back to hear more from Suzanne. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and we're listening today to a program hosted by my wife, Suzanne, as she is talking about the subject, Why I Exchanged My Christmas Tree for a Menorah, a special Christmas season teaching, sharing with you some of Suzanne's thoughts about Christmas, its traditions, and where it came from. We're focusing a bit more now on Christmas, seeing that this is our topic for the day. Let's first look at how the date came to be 25 December. And then we'll look at some pagan practices that have crept into Christmas celebrations all around the world. Firstly, it's important to know there's no mention of birth celebrations in the Bible itself or in the writings of early Christian writers. Writers such as Irenaeus and Tertullian in the second century, they didn't mention anything about celebrations of the birth of Jesus Christ. Oregon of Alexandria goes so far as to mock the Roman celebration of birth anniversaries, dismissing them as pagan practices. So there's a strong indication that Jesus's birth was not marked with similar festivities at that place and time. As far as we can tell, Christmas was not celebrated. This stands in sharp contrast to the writings and remembrance about his death and resurrection, which was clearly written about and celebrated. So this was um, second century. In about 200 CE, a Christian teacher in Egypt refers to the date Jesus was born. His name was Clement of Alexandria. But interesting enough, he was referring to several different days being proposed by various Christian groups as being the birthday of Jesus. Surprising as it may seem, none of them were 25 December at all. Clement writes, and I quote, There are those who have determined not only the year of the Lord's birth, but also the day. And they say that it took place in the 28th year of Augustus and on the 20th day of May. Further, others say that he was born on April 20 or 21. Clearly, there was great uncertainty, but also a considerable amount of interest in dating his birth in the late second century. But 25 December, as a date, has not shown up yet. By the fourth century, we find the first reference to two dates that were widely recognized 
um, shortly after. And now also celebrated as the birthday of Jesus. The first one, obviously, is December 25th in the Western Roman Empire. And in the Eastern Empire, especially Egypt and Asia Minor, they celebrated January the 6th. The modern Armenian church continues to celebrate Christmas on 6th January. But for most Christians, as you know, 25 December has prevailed. 6th January eventually came to be known as the Feast of the Epiphany, commemorating the Magi that arrived to meet the baby Jesus, which, by the way, is also not quite biblical. He wasn't a baby when they met him. But anyway, that's how the tradition has evolved. And the period between the 25th and the 6th of January was later known as the 12 days of Christmas. So the earliest mention of December the 25th as the birthday of Jesus comes from a mid-4th century Roman calendar. And this as much as 300 years after Jesus was born. We finally find people observing his birth in midwinter. But how did they come to settle on December the 25th? Right, there are two theories today. The first one is that Christmas Day of the 25th was borrowed from pagan celebrations. I'm sure most of you have heard that opinion from somewhere. The Romans, for instance, had their midwinter Saturnalia festival in late December. And then there was others um, like Roman Emperor Aurelian. He established the feast of the birth of the unconquered son, Sol Invictus, 25 December. So according to this theory, Christmas was a spin-off from these pagan solar festivals and early Christians chose these dates to encourage the spread of Christmas and Christianity throughout the Roman world. We do have evidence of Christianity borrowing from pagan traditions, especially after Constantine converted to Christianity and he decreed that Rome would be a Christian empire. So from the mid-4th century on, we do find Christians deliberately adapting and Christianizing pagan festivals. There was even a, a missionary in Britain in the 600s, Pope Gregory the Great, who wrote that he recommended the local pagan temples not to be destroyed, but to be converted into churches and that pagan festivals be celebrated as feasts of Christian martyrs. So since December the 25th feast seems to have existed before Constantine and his conversion in 312, a French scholar suggested that the early date of the 25th was not as much borrowed from paganism, but he's got a different theory about that. So let's look at theory number two. This was based on a report from 200 CE in which Tertullian of Carthage reported the calculation that the 14th of Nisan is the year that Jesus died. So Nisan is the first month of the Hebrew calendar, and the 14th of Nisan was the day that they would slaughter the Passover lambs. So Tertullian of Carthage worked out that that day on the Hebrew calendar of the time 2,000 years ago, that that was equivalent to the Roman calendar of March the 25th. Later, around the 4th century, it was thought that Jesus was also conceived on the 25th of March, and it was recognized as the Feast of the Annunciation, the commemoration of Yeshua's conception. Thus, Yeshua was believed to have been conceived on the 25th of March and crucified on the same day of the year, also on the 25th of March. Augustine, too, was familiar with this association, and he wrote in his book called On the Trinity, he says, For he, Jesus, is believed to have been conceived on the 25th of March. 
upon which day also he suffered. So the womb of the virgin in which he was conceived, where no one of mortals was begotten, corresponds to the new grave in which he was buried, wherein was never man laid, neither before him nor since. But he was born, according to tradition, upon December the 25th. From the calculation that he was conceived on the 25th of March, 25 December was then an easy step. You just count nine months later and then you end up with 25 December. So that's theory number two, how they ended up with 25 December as a birthday. Connecting Yeshua's conception and death in this way, like it's the same day of the year, seems odd to us, but it reflects ancient and medieval understandings that the whole of salvation was bound up together. The notion that creation and redemption should occur at the same time of the year was also reflected in ancient Jewish tradition, that the patriarchs and the prophets had their birth and death on the same date of the year. So in the end, to just conclude this part of our talk, in the end we cannot be entirely sure how 25 December came to be Christmas. But what we do know is that it never formed part of any celebration in the Bible or the early church. It developed from the 4th century until modern times. We also know that if you go and explore your Bible, shepherds were out in the field. If you go to Jerusalem in December, it's cold and it sometimes snows. So the shepherds were not out in the field. And if you work out from when John the Baptist, when his father received the message from the angel that he would bear a son, and then six months later, Miriam or Mary was conceived with Yeshua, if you work from that, it seems like he was born somewhere September, October. Some people pinpoint it with various other ways to 11th of September. So we know the early church did not recognize 25 December and all the evidence from the Bible points to not 25 December. What we know is that that date was chosen and developed around the 4th century we also know that many elements of the festival derives from pagan winter solstice festivals where they welcomed the return of the sun in sun worship. We'll mention a few, so we'll go into some of the Christmas traditions that we all know. Coming from South Africa or the Southern Hemisphere, because we don't have snow in December, many of these traditions didn't really work for us. We had very warm 25 Decembers generally. So one of them associated with Christmas is holly. And in Roman mythology, holly was the sacred plant of the god Saturn. And to honor him at the Saturnalia festival, which was late in December, the Romans gave each other gifts of holly wreaths. There you go. There's holly rooted in paganism. Saturnalia itself was known for revelry, drinking, overeating, gift giving, and the gifts that the Romans gave to each other were small and it was given for luck. Charity, we're associating Christmas today with charity. Um, charity was a practice towards those who were less fortunate and was also very popular at this time of the year in these Saturnalia festivals. The humble beginning of gift giving has developed over the years and as you all know, it is now a multi-million dollar business causing many people to say that the art of gift-giving has been replaced by mass consumerism and greed. 
every time when this time of the year approaches, I just say, thank you, God, that you've taken me out of this. And I just stay out of the shops as much as I can until this season is over. Mistletoe. Apparently, mistletoe was revered as a sacred plant by the Celts, the Norse, and the North American Native Americans. Druids believed that mistletoe could protect against thunder and lightning. Mistletoe was also recognized as a druidic symbol of joy and peace. And if enemies met each other underneath the mistletoe, they were obliged to put down their weapons and form a truce until the following day. This is where the custom of hanging a sprig of mistletoe from the ceiling and kissing under it originated from. Ivy was the symbol of Bacchus. You will see in statues of Bacchus, he's got an ivy wreath on his head. And he was the god of wine and revelry. He wore it in his crown and pagans believed ivy to be a symbol of eternal life. Though not so popular apparently in the States, in America, it plays an important part in traditional English Christmases. Traditional colors of Christmas, red and green. Those colors are derived from pagan decoration of green leaves and red berries on holly and mistletoe wreaths. So that's where red and green comes from. Carols, carol singing. These were originally pagan songs that were sung at celebrations surrounding the winter solstice festival. Even the word carol means a song or dance of joy and praise was sung in praise of the return of the sun after a long winter. Right, Father Christmas, one of our center figures of Christmas. This image that we have today of the white-bearded, big-bellied old man was shaped by a Coca-Cola ad campaign in the 1930s. He is firmly rooted in paganism, though. He's Coca-Cola's version of the Norse god Odin. Odin was often depicted as a chubby old man with a white beard. Odin came from the north versus Santa comes from the North Pole. Odin was lord of Alfheim, land of the elves. And so do we find that Santa Claus is lord of the elves? Odin rode an eight-legged horse, while Santa has eight reindeer. In late December, Odin would travel through the villages during Yuletide, which was the winter solstice celebration, and kids would fill their boots with straw and leave it next to the hearth for Odin's horse. In return, Odin would leave them toys and candy. The Yule log also originates from the Norse Yuletide winter solstice festival. So you can see how it has been Christianized, but it is not biblical concepts we're dealing with here. The evergreen boughs, these were reminders of all the green plants that would grow again when the sun god was strong and summer would return. In many countries, it was believed that evergreens would keep away witches, ghosts, evil spirits, and illness. The ancient Egyptians worshipped the sun god called Ra at the solstice, when Ra began to recover from illness. The Egyptians filled their homes with green palm rushes, which symbolized for them the triumph of life over death. So the sun god died and resurrected when he came back, death and resurrection. But instead of understanding that the sun was a symbol, a shadow of the Messiah, they worshipped the creation rather than the creator. In Northern Europe, the mysterious Druids and the priests of ancient Celts also decorated their temples with evergreen boughs as a symbol of everlasting life. Finally, lastly, the Christmas tree. Long before the advent of Christianity, plants and trees that remained green all year had a very special meaning for people in the winter. 
The fierce Vikings in Scandinavia thought that evergreens were the special plant of the sun god Balder. Germans, however, are credited with starting the Christmas tree tradition as we know it today in about the 16th century, when Christians started bringing decorative trees into their homes and following the pagan traditions. In the 1600s in America, in Massachusetts, for instance, there was a law enacted making any observance of December the 25th other than a church service a penal offence. People were fined for hanging decorations on trees. And that continued until the 19th century. That's when things started changing due to the influx of German immigrants into America. Apparently, even as recently as the 19th century, Americans found Christmas trees an oddity And as late as the 1840s, Christmas trees were seen as pagan symbols and not accepted by most Americans. Preachers were preaching against the heathen traditions of Christmas carols and decorated trees and any joyful expression that they thought desecrated the sacred event of the birth of Christ, which they then understood to be the 25th of December. And then in 1846, Queen Victoria and her German prince, Prince Albert, Apparently, they were sketched in the London News, standing with their kids around a Christmas tree. And unlike the previous royal family, Victoria was very popular with her subjects. And what was done at the court immediately became fashionable, not only in Britain, but the fashion-conscious East Coast of American society. They saw that sketch of Victoria and Albert with their kids around a Christmas tree. They saw that, liked it, and then the Christmas tree arrived in America. By the 1890s, Christmas ornaments were arriving from Germany and Christmas tree popularity was on the rise all around America. The Europeans had smaller trees, about four foot in height, while Americans liked their Christmas trees. They reached from floor to ceiling. And then later with the introduction of electricity, that brought Christmas lights And Christmas trees started to appear in town squares and homes all over America and, frankly, all over the world. And those traditions came to your home, whatever country you're living in. Now we have to ask ourselves, what does God say about this? I want to read you a verse in Mark, Mark 7. If you go and read Mark 7, verse 1 to 8, when the Pharisees were confronting Yeshua, They were asking him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? Now, if you have the opportunity to go to Israel, even today, the observant Jews wash their hands before they eat. But it's not about cleanliness. They don't wash with soap and water like you tell your kids after playing outside to go wash their hands. This is a religious ceremonial hand washing where they pour water over their, from their elbow to the hands and they say a blessing as they do that. And they believe that you have to do that before you eat. So this verse here in Mark is talking about a tradition that started amongst the Pharisees and the people of Israel, and that is still going even today. So they were asking him, why do your disciples not follow the traditions by washing their hands before they eat? But then Yeshua answered them and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, and now he's quoting from Isaiah, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your traditions, thereby making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Well, if that doesn't speak to your heart, I don't know what will. He is saying here that the washing of hands was not anywhere in the Torah. It's never been something that God commanded. This was a tradition of men. And while they were breaking God's commandments, they elevated the traditions of men to even higher than the commandments of God. And that goes on today in our communities as well. Let's examine our own passed down traditions of Christmas and we can test if it's violating the same principle that we're putting our traditions above the commandments of God. Yeshua rebuked the Pharisees and we should not put our traditions above his commandments. And there is also written in the Torah that we should not add to or take away from the commandments that he gave. So we cannot add commandments that weren't there. Yeshua also rebuked the Pharisees and said, you've placed a yoke on people too heavy to bear. And in that context, a yoke means the instructions of that specific sect. And Yeshua said, my yoke is light. It's not a burden to follow his commandments. Whereas their commandments, the, the commandments of men that the Pharisees put on people, that was a heavy yoke. They had so many added things, do's and don'ts, that people could hardly bear it. So now that we've looked at the paganism and how that's crept into church, intermingled with his ways, let's look at some scriptures regarding such mixtures to further explore how our God feels about this, should we still be unsure. Jeremiah 16 verse 19 says, The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies worthlessness, and unprofitable things. We have inherited lies from our forefathers. So now that we know better and we've got internet and we've got information, I believe God is revealing these things in these times because he's preparing a bride for his return, a bride without spot or blemish. And just like John the Baptist called people to repentance to say return to God's ways before the first coming, The spirit of Elijah goes out again now before his second coming and says, return to his ways. Come out of sin and return. Teshuvah means to turn and return back to God and to his ways. Leave the lies that we inherited from our fathers, the traditions that we've raised up against the commandments of God. Leave those unprofitable things behind. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13 It says, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance. You didn't know before, right? God gets that. But as he who called you is holy or set apart, you should also be set apart in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Holy doesn't mean the saint with a halo above the head. Holy means to be set apart. We have to be set apart because he's set apart. He's not like any other God. He is set apart from all the other gods. And not only is he set apart from them, but he is set apart to us. He is our God. And so too, we should be set apart from the world and be set apart to him. And we do that by following his ways. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep, guard my commandments. How much clearer can it be? 
Revelation 14, verse 12. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus or Yeshua. So there we have it. Because we've been saved, we love him back by keeping his commandments and following his ways. This is what Revelation is talking about. Revelation 3, verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Here, cold isn't a bad thing. It's the mixture that's the bad thing. Hot or cold, you like your coffee hot and you like your water cold. But lukewarm is a mixture of hot and cold. That is what is going to spew out, the mixture. And mixture is referred to as Babylon. Come out of Babylon, Revelation 18 verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. This is referring to Babylon. Lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Babylon is represented by the mixture of God's word and Babylonian pagan cultures and religion. When the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, when they were sent into exile to Babylon, when they returned later, they brought a lot of those Babylonian customs with them. And to this day, they end up with a lot of those mixtures. And so too, the northern kingdom of of Israel that was scattered all over the world and cut off, they were taken into exile by the Assyrians, and then they were lost among the nations. God scattered them, but he promised he's going to bring them back. But he says, come out from among those nations. Don't mix God's ways with the ways of the world. That mixture is similar to a tree that we read of right in the beginning of our Bible. And that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The program that you're listening to today is why I exchanged my Christmas tree for a menorah a special Christmas season teaching hosted by my wife, Suzanne, sharing with you some of her thoughts about Christmas, its traditions, and where it came from. Knowledge in Hebrew, yada, is to have experience of something. To have knowledge of the tree of good and evil means you've experienced it, you've eaten that fruit. And we all have eaten from that fruit. That's why we will all die. That is poison fruit. But now he says, don't eat from that mixture, that Babylon tree, that tree of knowledge of good and evil anymore. Come to the tree of life. Walk away. Stop eating from this tree that is toxic and it will poison you and lead to death. In Hebrew, the word for and, if we say the tree of knowledge of good and evil, That and can also be translated as but, so the tree of knowledge of good but evil. So we can either, whichever of the two, we can either say it's a tree of mixture, there's good things in there, but there's bad things in there, like lukewarm water, it's a mixture of good and bad. And God is not a mixture of good and bad. He is life. There is no darkness in his turning. If we were to translate it as but, the tree of knowledge of good but evil, it looks like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It looks good, but it is evil. It is simply dressed up to look good, but underneath the bonnet, it is evil. Almost like that apple that was given to Snow White, where the witch made it look like this beautiful apple, but once she took a bite, inside it was poisonous. So in talking about this Christmas tree, that Christmas tree represents the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
no matter how you Christianize it, put a beautiful cloak around it, inside the core of it is poison. It is from the wrong tree. Now let's go and look at more scriptures specifically about trees. Deuteronomy 16 verse 21. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar, which you build for yourself to Yahweh your Elohim. So it was saying, don't plant trees near the altar. Where the Israelites had their temple, they were not allowed to plant trees there. Why? Why no trees near the altar? Because God wanted them to bring clear distinction. Remember, he said, be holy, be set apart. He wanted to bring clear distinction between what Israel does and how they worship and what the other nations were doing. The nations were known for worshiping their deities under trees, on the high places and the hills and the mountains, in the groves. God didn't need the trees of the earth to show us who he is and what he wants from us. Nope, he already has a tree in his house. Do you know what that tree is? It's the tree of life. And how is that represented in the Bible? The menorah. So in conclusion, let's talk about the menorah. In Exodus 25 verse 3, it says, You shall also make a lampstand or a menorah of pure gold. The menorah shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. Do you hear the words there? Branches, knobs, flowers. The menorah has seven branches, the center trunk with three coming out of the one side and three coming out of the other side, much like a tree. In Hebrew, the word for tree is etz. A vine is called an etz. Even a stalk of wheat is called an etz. So that's why Yeshua being crucified on a post a cross, that's also called an etz, a tree. So in John 15, verse 5, Yeshua says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Do you see the menorah there? He is the vine, we are the branches. And the center branch of the menorah is called the shamash, the servant branch. The servant branch receives the oil, and out of that it then flows to the other six branches, giving those lamps light as well. So in the menorah, we have a picture of the servant light with the branches bearing light, those branches who are us called to walk in the light as we are led by him, the servant branch. In Mark 10 verse 43, Yeshua says, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is the servant branch of the menorah. He says, I am the light serving the world. And we too, he says, we also are the light because we are the servant branches coming out of the servant branch, also bringing light to the world. In Revelation 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter through the gates into the city. That is the new Jerusalem. So I want to encourage you, go and pray on these things you've heard here today. Pray that he leads you by his spirit. The role of the spirit is outlined in the Bible. 
In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it's prophesied about the new covenant. Now, we as believers in Jesus, Yeshua, we are proclaiming that we are part of the new covenant, right? So in Jeremiah, when it's prophesied, listen to this, where it prophesies about the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Note here, it doesn't say a new covenant with South Africa, a new covenant with Australia, with China, with Thailand, with Japan, with America, with Spain, with France, with Germany. He makes a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So that's the united Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I will put my law, my Torah, my ways of living, my instructions for life, I will put it in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see again here this marriage covenant that happened when Moses came down with the engagement contract between God and his people? Ezekiel 36 verse 2 also mentions this new covenant. For I will take you from among the nations. So there where you are, in America, in Spain, in France, in Thailand, in China, in South Africa, in Australia, wherever you are, he's calling you out. Remember that Mikra, the called out assembly, he's calling you out. I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now, what is the purpose? It says here in Ezekiel, what is the purpose of this new spirit? I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And what is the spirit going to do? It will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep or guard my judgments and do them. This is the new covenant. No matter what country you come from, just like Abraham was called out from Ur of the Chaldeans, just like he was saying in Revelation, come out of Babylon. God is calling you out from whatever spiritual country you find yourself in. From your mixture of truth and tradition, he says, come out of that. And I'm grafting you into this nation of Israel, this nation of believers in Yeshua that he calls Israel. He will graft you in no matter your bloodline. He will graft you in to his nation because his covenant is with Israel and with Judah. Here we have it. This is the new covenant. Isn't this amazing that no matter where you were born, you are welcome to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I've heard people say, but why are the Jews so special? And why did God choose them and we're all on the outside? We can't be special. He's always said that he's choosing himself a bride, a nation, but he's called many to say, you are welcome. Come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Many are called, but few are chosen. So he's calling you to be grafted into his Israel and where he is putting his spirit in your heart so that you can walk in his statutes and guard his judgments and do them. 1 John four seventeen verse 19, at the end it says, We love him because he first loved us. 
He loved us. He called us. He made a way for us back, no matter where you live, where you come from, no matter what pagan gods you've served. He loved us first and is calling us to a love response. If you love me, obey God, keep my commandments. Not like the pagan gods where we have to appease them and offer sacrifices and bow before them and give things up to say, please, please, please just be good to me and bless me where we have to love them first before they bless us. God doesn't work like that. He said, while we were yet sinners, he loved us first and gave his life for us. And now he's saying, take this love and respond back. That is the God we serve. He that first loved us, he is the tree of life in the middle of the garden. That is the good tree. And eating from that tree is what we need to do. Stay away from the tree of Babylon, the tree of mixture, the tree of death, the tree of experience of the good things of God, but mixed in with the things of the world. Revelation 21 verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He is the tree of life. He's put his spirit in our hearts so that we can respond to his love and to his word and to his ways and therefore live eternally through the access he has brought for us through Yeshua to the living tree of life. Wow, what grace, what love. Now let's live that story out to others through not only our lives, but also through the biblical calendar that we should observe to be that called out assembly, to meet with him on his appointed times and to show the world the shadow of Messiah through this calendar and not cling to the traditions of the nations that have no idea that God loved us first as it is written there in John. Again, John 14, 15, if you love me, guard or keep my commandments. Now, which commandments did he mean? At one stage in my Christian walk, I believe this was a different set of commandments that was given in the Old Testament. Surely it couldn't have been the commandments given at Sinai because Jesus nailed that to the cross, right? So it must be a new set of commandments. So Jesus came to save us from the unachievable demands made by the law by nailing it to the cross. That's what I've believed before. So now we were free from the Old Testament laws of Moses and now following a new law, the law of Christ, which was all about loving one another, though I never really knew what that meant. And the Holy Spirit could now lead us in this new law of Christ. So Christmas is all good as long as it's done in love. Does any of this sound familiar? Does it sound possible after what we've studied together? The law of sin and death is what led to bondage, but Christ set us free. Now we are free from sin and death and we can walk in the tree of life and in the newness of life according to his ways. So who gave the law of Moses? Was it Moses? Was it God the Father? It was the pre-incarnate Yeshua who gave the law. That same Yeshua that you serve today, the law of Christ, that is the same one, the pre-incarnate word of God, who met with Moses on the mountain of Sinai and gave him the Torah. I can show you from a few scriptures. This is a long topic on its own. So I'll just give you a few scriptures as reference. Luke 2 verse 11 says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we all know Yeshua is the Savior, Christ the Lord. 
But then in James 4 verse 12, it says there is one that is able to save and one that is also the lawgiver. So this one of Luke 2.11, who is the Savior, Christ the Lord, James 4.12 says he is also the lawgiver. The same one that is able to save is also the lawgiver. Hebrews 12, verse 24 to 26, says Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, his voice shook the earth at Mount Sinai. So if you go and read verse 19, 20, it's all the context of the law being given at Sinai. John 4, 15, if you love me, guard my commandments. Yeshua is here repeating Exodus 20, verse 6. Exodus 20 was when the law was given. And Exodus 20, verse 6, it says, showing mercy to thousands of them that love me. This is God speaking. He shows mercy to thousands of them that love him and keep or guard his commandments. So Yeshua is referring to Exodus 20 when he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, guard my commandments. He is making the claim that he brought them out of Egypt. He is God. He is the word of the Father sent to give us his instructions for life, to bring us out of Egypt, to save us, and then show us how shall we live. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, thus says the Lord, ask for the old paths. That is the good way. Walk therein. So did Jesus do away with the law that he gave and then established a new law? No, he did not. The new covenant is a renewal. It is the fulfillment of the promises made by the Father that he would do a new thing through his word in order to restore our relationship with him. That new thing isn't a new law. It's the same law for life, the same instructions, but it's us having new hearts. That's what makes it different. We have received new hearts, and now the Spirit can indwell this new heart and lead us in His commandments. If you're stuck all this way, thank you for being that brave. And remember the story about the salad bowl with my mom-in-law. God has received your heart. You can come to him now and say, forgive me, I brought you something that you don't like, but you've received my heart. Thank you for your graciousness, but thank you for teaching me, for showing me how to love you better. Now that you know how he wants to be loved, you, like Yeshua, can be a light in this ever-darkening world. He's coming soon for a bride without spot or blemish, a bride that is going to be cleaned up a bride that follows him wholeheartedly with your whole heart and your whole mind and all your being, even if it means leaving your traditions behind. I pray that you will consider leaving your Christmas tree as well and exchanging it for a menorah. Let's pray. Yahweh, our God, our Elohim, thank you that you are gracious to us. Thank you that once you've caught us as fish out of the nations. You've taken us out of all these nations and you've brought us to you by your love for us while we were yet sinners. But now that you've caught us as fish, now you're cleaning us up. Help us to follow you. Clean us up according to your ways that we may be set apart as you are set apart. That we can not only proclaim you among our congregations, to our families, in our marriages, in our homes, but to the world out there who lives in darkness. 
that we can proclaim the shadow that points to you, the Messiah, so that we can be part of bringing them in to be grafted into your tree of life as well. I pray for everyone that you will continue to stir in their hearts whatever seed from any of this that I've said is meant for them. I pray that you will be the preacher afterwards through your spirit in their hearts. I pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thanks, Suzanne, for sharing with us some of your thoughts about Christmas. The program today is why I exchanged my Christmas tree for a menorah, a special Christmas season teaching hosted by my wife, Suzanne, sharing with you some of her thoughts about Christmas and the traditions about what it means and how it came to be a part of Christian culture. If you wish to hear more from Suzanne on various topics, particularly for women, she hosts an encouragement program for ladies called the SWAGWAY, an acronym for Suffering Women Alive for God. If you wish to hear more from Suzanne, you can link up to her Facebook page and or send her a message. It's the SWAGWAY, that's SWAGWAY, S-W-A-G-W-A-Y. It's two words, the SWAGWAY. I'm sure she would be thrilled to hear from you. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Thanks for joining us today. And I'll be back next time to finish up on my teaching series about the rise and fall of the Zadokites, the Zadokite or Tzadok calendar, and Yeshua's last Passover week chronology details, along with a summary of the events that historically have influenced Judaism down to this very day. Yah willing, I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Hallelujah, come the glory.